pray and we'll get started. <clears throat> Father, thank you for the opportunity to study, uh, take this whole semester to study who you are, to consider, as we did last week, that you are a knowable God, that we can um, gain some measure of knowledge of who you are. Yet, as we also noted, and as we will be reminded of this week, you are incomprehensible. You are um, you are knowable, but you are not fully knowable. And so we thank you that you have, as an infinite being, have given us, finite beings, the ability to know you both factually and through a relationship. And so I pray that you'd help us as we um, learn about the Trinity tonight. That we that our minds would be blown, that none of us would walk away thinking, oh yeah, I get this, because none of us ought to be able to get it, because it is beyond our ability to fully understand and know. So I pray that we would walk away excited and enthusiastic about the, uh, the incomprehensible God that we serve. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so last week we said that God is knowable. Yet he's incomprehensible. So he can be known accurately, but he cannot be known fully or exhaustively. And we said that knowing God is more than a factual knowledge about God. We said that knowing God in a biblical sense is to have a relationship with him. And then we spent uh, probably, if there was a section of the time that we spent the most in, it was teasing out the fact that we all come to God with some idea about God because God has revealed himself to all of us. And so we all have ideas about God, whether we're Christian or non-Christian, and we have a concept of God in our minds. But the question before us is, does our conception, does our idea of who God is compare correctly and accurately to the way God has revealed himself in his word. Because I think that it's easy for us to make an idol of God. We can manufacture God in our own image, the way we want God to look like, to act like, to be like, and then we worship that God and we hold God to our standard rather than submitting our minds and our allegiance and our faith to him. So do we believe God wholeheartedly and unreservedly as he's revealed himself to us? Or are we holding onto that image of God that we've crafted? But this God, the creator of all things, has chosen to reveal himself to you and I so that we can have a relationship with him. So he is knowable, yet he's incomprehensible. And to this week, we're going to get into a little bit of that incomprehensibility, the fact that we cannot know him exhaustively or fully. And we're going to get a little interesting this week. So does anyone not have a pen? So I'm going to take you back into your high school days, and I'm going to give you a pop quiz. Can I have some chalk? Yeah. Now, here's the thing. Before you start looking at the quiz... And, and uh, start answering the questions. Pay attention to the teacher. Because I know you. I know how you work. You work the same way I do. You want a head start? Do not write your name on the quiz. Do not share your answers with anyone in the class. Okay? 
We're not going to. I'm not going to ask you to pass your paper to the your neighbor and grade it. I don't want you to feel any pressure that this is your answers are going to be made public knowledge. <laughs> I am not going to collect this at the end. All right. So read the directions and go for it. All right. So the goal of this lesson is not to humiliate you <laughs> or myself. All right. The goal is to discover as best as we can, as our finite minds will allow, what it means um, that God is triune. What does it mean when we use the term Trinity? And I thought, well, maybe giving you a quiz might help make this a little bit more interesting of a class rather than me stand here tell you what the orthodox, historically orthodox position is then argue for it from scripture. So, number one, the word Trinity is not found in the Bible, true or false? Sure? Yeah. <laughs> Did you look that up on your phone? No. no. You're correct. <laughs> the word Trinity, to many people's surprise, is not found in the scriptures. Number two, the word Trinity conveys the idea of triunity or the idea of three in oneness. True or false? True. True. Number three, the doctrine of the Trinity is progressively revealed throughout Scripture rather than clearly stated and explained in a few verses. Here's what I mean by that before you belt out your answer. Is that over the course of all of the pages of Scripture, we we gain a little tidbit here, we see a little bit more here, we see a little bit more here. The New Testament comes and we're like, whoa, we see a lot more. Rather than John 3.16, for God so loved the world, and all of a sudden we hear something about the good news of the gospel and our sin or something like that. So that's what I mean when I say progressively revealed. So is that true or false? True. true. It's true. Because there isn't one verse that just clearly and explicitly defines the word that doesn't exist in the Bible. <laughs> right? Number four. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 through 5, clearly teaches that there is only one God. So the Bible could be described as a, or the biblical Christianity could be described as a monotheistic religion. True or false? True. That text says, anyone know it off the top of their head? So the last part is the Lord is one. Okay, hero of Israel. Right, and then he says, love the Lord your God. So... So, the Lord, our God, is one. Number five, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. So, that would be the Great Commission text that says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That text, and I also listed two others, seems to indicate that there are three distinct deities. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Is that true or is that false? True, true. I said false. It's, it's one deity. Okay. But three persons, three persons, one essence. Okay. So, Pete, you say it's false because it's three persons, one essence, and so it's one deity. And 
Dad, you said it was true. So why would you say it's true? I just question. I I question the deity thing, the use of that term. um, (laughs) I was trying. I told you on the way here. I was going to try to be tricky on one question. This is the question. But they are all God. Exactly. This is the what I wanted you to feel is the tension we all should feel, right? Because as the the triunity of God is revealed throughout the pages of Scripture. We, If you're just reading from cover to cover, you read and, and you see Gen, or, uh, Deuteronomy 6, and you're like, okay, God is one. And then you get to the New Testament, and Jesus bursts on the scene, and I want you to feel that tension of thinking, wait a second, like now do we have three gods? So we have three and one, and three don't do not that doesn't work, mathematically speaking, right? That's the title of one of the articles that you read. It was one plus one plus one equals one. And you're like, yeah. That's some pretty, that's like, uh, what kind of math? That's like Obama uh, school math or common core math, right? Look at, well, let me just, just let me read this and you can hear uh, the three distinct Persons, as as uh, Pete <clears throat> rightly said, Luke three twenty one through twenty two. When all the people, this is by what the way Jesus baptism. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, so here's Jesus. Heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. So now we have Jesus physically present, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove coming out of the open heavens. So now we have two persons of this one deity and then a voice came from heaven you are my son whom I love with you I am well pleased so now we have the father speaking to the son in Old Testament sort of lingo and so we have three again three distinct not deities but persons of one deity okay John 15 I think another great text that's often not used with respect to God's triunity. It says, When the Advocate comes, the Advocate there Jesus is referring to as the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father. So now Jesus is saying, I'm going to send, once I get to the Father, I'm going to send the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father. He will testify about me. So the the idea, if you want to think about it in like an orderly fashion, so Jesus says in the same context, might be somewhere in 15, 16, or 17, I think. He says that it's actually better for us if he goes away and the Spirit's going to come. Remember we talked about that last semester when we got to the Spirit. I said, how can that be? Jesus is saying it's better that we have the Spirit and not him. Like, what? So Jesus dies. He rises again. He ascends into heaven. When Jesus ascends into heaven to the and is enthroned at God's right hand, the first act that he does is what? Seen on the day of Pentecost when what happens? The advocate is sent. So we see all three persons involved. Number six. God the Father is eternal. In other words, he has always existed. God the Son came into existence when he was born of the Virgin Mary. We would think of uh, of 
John three sixteen in the King James version, he was a he was the only begotten Son, right? So he was birthed by God. And then the Holy Spirit was born when Jesus ascended into heaven and sent him down to earth on the day of Pentecost, as recorded in Acts two. Is that true or is that false? False. False. Why? Because it seems to be in in, in the Gospels. At times, it sounds like the Holy Spirit is a product of God the Father and God the Son. So why wouldn't that be true? I say just from a human point of view, I guess it would look true, but God and the Holy Spirit both always work. Prove that. Genesis. Okay. 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 The spirit was hovering over the surface of the water. Colossians or Hebrews one. I think it, uh, it's either Hebrews one or Colossians one, or it's one of those two, or maybe both of them, where it talks about Jesus was a cre- the creator. So Jesus had to be eternal, right? What about John one? beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Okay, so who's the Word? Jesus. How do you know that? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. Yeah, the Word became flesh. The Word is Jesus. Jesus became flesh. The Son of God, the text even says. So, Jesus is eternal. We know God is eternal. What about the Spirit? Okay, so we have this veiled reference in Genesis where it's saying the Spirit is hovering over the surface of the water. How do we know that that's the Spirit? Or how do we know that the Spirit is eternal, that the Spirit's always existed? Is there any text of Scripture or any uh, argument or proof, theological proof you could suggest? I'm not trying to be tricky. I'm just... Uh, Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9.14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? So right there, smack dab, the author of Hebrews describes the Spirit of God as eternal. So if you need a proof text, there's a simple one. So we obviously don't have time to just go through the whole the whole nine yards with proving every aspect of the God's triunity. All right, section two. So hopefully you did really well on the first section. It wasn't anything too crazy tricky except for question five, and I was intentionally trying to be tricky. So if you got tricked, it's okay. So section two, here you're just... I'm looking at the overall explanation or definition of the Trinity here, and you're needing you need to be detectives in this sense. Is the statement true and is the statement complete? Because the statement might have true things involved, but it might not be complete. And that's a key thing. So something might be false um, and incomplete. Something might be true yet incomplete, in which case it would still be heresy. So 
The designations are orthodox or heresy. Number seven, God is made up of three distinct deities. God the Father, who arbitrary I've just picked out some characteristics. He's the architect, God the Son, who is the accomplisher, God the Holy Spirit, who is the applier. So I'm thinking there, let's say in like the saving realm, God does the the planning, Jesus comes and does the redeeming. God, the Holy Spirit, comes and does the application of salvation. So, what do you say about number seven? Heresy or orthodoxy? Heresy. Why is it heresy? I would say in, in three distinct deities. Um, well, they are distinct, right? Know, because we the, just read texts that say that the Holy Spirit, the not, Son, and the Father are distinct. They're not in the separate in the sense of detached from the other. It's hard to it's hard to put that in words. That's just my it's my take on the statement. Are they three different gods? No, they're no, one god. They are peace. I'm sticking with my first answer. <laughs> yeah, it's heresy because there is God is how many? One. One. Existing in three persons. Three persons, right? So this is the heresy known as tritheism. There's not many people who would hold to this, but this is the heresy known as tritheism. Essentially, this is a form of polytheism. It's denying God's oneness. This would be an example of a statement that is, kind of sounds true, but it's not complete, right? Because you could kind of maybe fuzz a little bit on the whole term deity, and you could kind of say, well, maybe I can kind of see what you're talking about. But this statement is is false in that regard, but it's also incomplete. You look like you have a question. Yeah, I do. Um, you said a form of polytheism, but what was the word that you used before? That? Tritheism. Tritheism. So, in other words, there's three deities, three gods. So each, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are three distinct gods. Number eight, God is one God who shows himself in three different ways. In the Old Testament is the Father. God the Father, that means, not in a lovey sort of way. In the Gospels is the Son, is in Jesus. And then in the church, presently, the Holy Spirit, Pentecost on. Heresy or orthodoxy? Heresy. Why is this heresy? Because it sounds kind of true to me. They were all at work in the Old Testament, not just... God the Father, and they're all at work. So Jesus was in the Old Testament? He was actively working in the Old Testament. Theophanies. Okay. The Spirit was working in creation, as we should mention. Okay. But certainly we would say that the God-man Jesus, the one that we know of, Jesus of Nazareth, the one that came to earth, his activity is not um, highlighted in the Old Testament like that of Yahweh, the God of Israel, right? God the Father, right? The Holy Spirit's activity is not um, on display in the same way as God the Father, right? He, I'm not denying that he, he was working, right? 
because we could have debates all day long about, well, we're Old Testament believers and dwell. We're Old Testament believers regenerated, both activities of the Holy Spirit. We could argue that all day long, and that would be fun. We're not going to do that. But those would be works of the Holy Spirit going on in the Old Testament. So is this heresy or is this orthodoxy? You're right, it's heresy. I was just trying to make you think. This heresy would be known as modalism. And and let me explain it. Modalism. M-O-D-A-L-I-S-M. M-O-D-A-L-I-S-M. And here's the key. It's not so much the whole time frame that I was trying to push you on about like who who is the the preeminent worker in the testament. The key here is, is that God shows himself in three different ways, or I could use the term manifestations or modes. It, the difference is here persons or just expressions. distinct personal entities, Father, Son, and Spirit, that there's a distinction and that these distinct persons are eternal versus periodic, temporary expressions of one God. Let me give you like a real-life example. Modalism could be described, even though a modalist would probably argue with me, but for like an everyday layman sort of explanation. Modalism would be like me. I'm one individual, but I'm Mr. Dawson's assistant. I'm Caden and Hadley's dad. I'm Mallory's husband. I'm Ken and Sue's son. I'm Taryn's brother. Right? I wear all of these hats. I'm this person when I need to be. I'm this person when I need to be. Right, So it's like I'm I'm the same person wearing different hats or I have a different name depending on what I'm doing. That's kind of a modalistic sense where it's, it's maintaining God's oneness, but it's eliminating God's threeness. Because it's removing the distinctiveness of the three persons and it's also removing the eternality of those three persons. Because in modalism, there's not God is not eternally expressing himself as this one expression. He's not eternally Jesus or eternally the Holy Spirit or eternally the Father. He's eternally God who pops into humanity as this and then pops back out and then he pops in as this, pops back out, pops as this. That's the idea of modalism. But that is heresy because God is one but he's eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. All right, number nine. There's one God existing in three persons. The Father being the first and most powerful, the Son being the second in power and authority, and the Holy Spirit being the third. Heresy or orthodoxy? Heresy. Really? Why? Because don't you, I mean, first person, second person, third person, right? They're all the same. What'd you say? I can't back up the scripture, but they're all, to me, they're all the same in power and in their deity. Okay. So it's heresy because they're all the same power, they're all of the same 
You said they're all the same deities? The stars are holiness, I guess. Okay. I don't know if I'm wording great, but... Anyone want to help? I mean, you're, what they're, you're saying is right, but anyone want to jump in and help them? They're co-equal. Okay, they're co-equal. There's still no, going off of that, there's no order of, you know, what's the most, who's the most important or most powerful. Stating it this way gives them almost like a, like degrees of authority, you know, where... Yeah. One one is more power, as it says, most powerful. Um, the scripture doesn't say that. I don't believe. No. Chris, you're being awfully aware. quiet over there. Well, I agree with everybody. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I believe this point. I think you're right. It's heresy, and here's the reason why: is that the, the heart of this question is getting at God. Each member of the Trinity is fully God. The Spirit, even though you know He's working now in the hearts of human beings, He's not less than God. He's not ninety-nine point nine percent God. He's not. Eh, he's only kind of partly powerful, or that He is the third in the sense of like He's just like not as good as the others. If we, if we sat there and we had the time to look through all of Scripture and, and really tease out the, the full godness or divinity of each of the members of the Trinity, we would see like absolutely clearly that there's no argument. I mean, go look at Wayne Grudem's commentary, Systematic Theology. Go look at Dr. McCune's Systematic Theologies, which are right over there. I mean, it's undeniable that the, each member of the Trinity is fully God. And that's what the heart of this is. So this heresy is known as subordinationism. Subordinationism. And to varying degrees, they're denying either um, the divinity of Jesus, the divinity of the Holy Spirit, or the divinity of both. So they're they're questioning the full divinity of the second and third person of the Trinity. All right, so number 10 then. There is one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, each fully divine. Orthodoxy or heresy? So this is the orthodox position. That there is one God... So that's a big thing. You got to get one God eternally existing as three persons. So we have one in three. So we got the three persons, and they're not three manifestations. They're not three expressions. They're not three modes. They're not three ways. They are three distinct persons. And all three of those persons have eternally existed. Not just eternally existed as individual gods, they have eternally existed in this unique relationship of triunity. So there is one God who has eternally existed as these three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and each are fully and equally God. Or to put it in a little slightly more technical way, they each fully partake of the divine essence as I think used that term earlier. So I hope 
that by this stage in the game, you're sitting there thinking, huh? I don't understand how that works. Good. Because you can't, and I can't, and the greatest theologians can't. And if you sit there, as one article I read, if you sit there at the end of the day and you're like, oh, yeah, I get this, then you didn't get it. Because the math doesn't work, right? The best, um, and, and let me take just a quick second to caution you against ever trying to use an analogy, a human analogy to try to explain God's triunity. Your book attempted to do that. Right. Stupid. Sorry, author of the article. But just pure stupidity. Right. A three-leaf clover doesn't cut it. An egg doesn't cut it. Water in its three different forms doesn't cut it. It always breaks down and it always actually does a disservice to God's triunity. Let's just be comfortable with leaving it as God is amazing and he can't be fully known. But he is knowable. He's revealed himself so we can know him. But he hasn't revealed to us all the intricate details of his character in nature. Now, I don't know if I should. It's not one of those things that you fully have to understand. No. Because you can't. So, it's you have to believe what Scripture says, that God is one in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and okay, that's it. End of, almost like end of story. And then whenever you read scripture, whenever you read about God the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit, it, you're, you're reading about God. You're, you're under, you understand that all three of them are God. You can't make sense of it or understand it or comprehend it. You just have to believe it. I guess what I'm, where my mind goes is that I think sometimes, you know, when I've talked to some of my unbelieving friends, um, they would use, they like to use illustrations of things that we cannot fully comprehend about God as um, reasons, legit, supposedly legitimate reason, reasons to not believe in Him. The problem of evil, for one. God's triune nature is another. And rather than and this is where the argument gets uh, uh, you know, gets a little bit circular, but everyone's argument ultimately is circular because um, everyone ultimately comes back to an, uh, in a position where they're not willing to compromise, where they say, "I'm not willing. This is what I think to be true," and everyone ultimately comes back to something that they presuppose is true in their argumentation. But at the end of the day, just because we, this can't be an obstacle and an impediment to disbelieving God, it ought to draw us to say, oh God, you are amazing. And if our response to a doctrine like this or to other doctrines that boggle our mind where God cannot be fully knowable 
to us, God's incomprehensibility ought not to lead us to a place of lack of faith that ought to spur us on to greater faith. And I know that seems somewhat contradictory, but our regenerated heart is going to be the key. Because if we have regenerated hearts, we're going to be drawn to worship at God's incomprehensibility rather than moved to doubt. I don't know if that makes sense. So, so what? So why are we spending this first, this kind of like first lesson where we're getting to know God, studying His triune nature? If if it is, as my dad has said, well, we can't we can't get it. We just got to believe it as we encounter it. Then what does it matter? Well, let me offer you a couple suggestions. It matters because God's triunity. God, the Trinity, provides for us an example of our relational unity that ought to exist in our Christian relationships. John 17, 21. I'll start reading in 20. It says, My prayer, this is Jesus, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them, so all these believing ones, may be one. And he's praying to his Father, that they may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I and in you. So he's saying, hey, there's this relational unity that exists in the Trinity. That ought to be replicated in my people. Okay? Number two. The Trinity is essential for the Gospel. Now, I was careful in the way I stated that. The Trinity... Is not, is not something that must be understood in order to become a believer. But the Trinity is essential for the gospel to actually be right and true. And here's what I mean. God is the planner. The Son is the one who accomplishes. And the Spirit is the one who applies. So God in Ephesians 1 is said to be the one who is foreknowing, predestinating, electing those who are going to believe. He is choosing his people. Then he sends the Son to come and do the work of redemption, to die on the cross, to be the sinless substitute for his people. And then he sends the Spirit in the world who convicts the hearts of those for whom Christ has died. And regenerates those hearts, and they repent and they believe, and they turn their lives to Christ. Now think about that if there's not unity in the triunity. We got some serious problems, right? Because now all of a sudden everything gets wonky because we got God electing all these random people, the Son just going and you know, dying for whoever, and and then the spirit not knowing which ones to apply his regenerative work to, we got some serious problems. Regardless of your if you're Arminian or Calvinist, we got problems all over the place if we don't have God's triunity working together in concert. What about prayer? The pathway of prayer. We pray to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 2, 
verse 18. We pray to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. Now, in Old Testament times, how did we talk to God? Well, we had to go to a human priest who was sinful just like us. He had to go inside the Holy of, or wherever he had to go. He had to go take care of his own junk. And then he could enter the Holy of Holies. And he could only hang out there for so long. He even had to have a bell attached to him lest he keel over and die because of his own unrepentant sin. And that was only once a year. Yikes. We have instant, anywhere, anytime access to God the Father, the throne of grace, because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. And the Spirit knows the will of God. And Romans 8 says that even when we can't even get words out, the Spirit knows the will of God and knows the heart of God and He knows us so personally that He can groan for us. So we need the triunity for prayer. What about this? That if you are a genuine believer, 1 Corinthians 6.19 calls you a temple of God. What was the temple in the Old Testament? Is the dwelling place of who? God Almighty. For that to be accurate, an accurate description of you and I in 1 Corinthians 6.19, that we can be called the temple of God. The Spirit is residing in us. That means the Spirit. That's another very easy proof for the deity of the Spirit. That for that whole analogy to be true, for us to be the temple of God, The Spirit must be God. But we have the Spirit who is fully God residing in us. Every believer from the moment of the regeneration is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have God in us. God has come. He has made good on His promise to dwell up and take residence in us. So God is knowable. Last week. But God is incomprehensible this week. He cannot be fully known. His nature is beyond our full comprehension. He can be known accurately, but he certainly cannot be known exhaustively. Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? The answer, no one. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are incomprehensible, that you are a God that is so matchless, that you are so transcendent, that you are so other that we can fall on our knees and we can worship you because you are rich. You are wise. You are full of knowledge. You are unsearchable. You are incomprehensible. Yet, you are knowable. So may we worship you. May we love you. May we trust you. May we obey you because of how great you are. In your name we pray. Amen.